As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me, Father in heaven. We come now, of course, to this, which is your word. I pray that we would hear your voice as the word is read. And Father, then all of our thoughts and everything that we say, I pray, will resonate, will be consistent with, will echo that very word of God. That's our heart's desire. So I pray that you would take from our minds any distraction you would take from our hearts, any contrary belief, and that you would uh, cause us to hear this word with great joy, to delight in it, to live with this, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I again want to read these first 10 verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, please. Hear the word of God. You know when I say that, it's really true. You know that. Really, uh, we should get goosebumps. You see, when we hear that. We've said so many times, people say, God has never spoken to me. And I say, have you ever read the Bible? See, <laughs> that's God speaking. It really, really, really is. Listen. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sakes. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia... But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, we've been parking for last weekend this on on these characteristics of believers, of Christians, of followers of Christ. And Paul says of this this church in Thessalonica, which he lays out to be a model for the rest of the churches, which is fantastic and phenomenal because it's it's a young church, it's a new church, it's a church that probably isn't maybe a year or so old when Paul finally writes to them. And and, and so he's saying, he's saying, "I, I want everybody... Everybody already knows about you because of the, the word that's echoed forth from you, that sounded forth from you. And he says, but, but, but I, I want to write to you. I pray for you all the time because I've heard about what's going on there. And, and I want all the churches to know about 
what's happening there in Thessalonica. And again, what's amazing is that we are still reading about them. That church still is a model, if you will, for all the churches, for us. And so we we, we look at this as the word of God, which it is, and, and this is God saying to us, this should be true of you. Mine, it is true of you. That is, because if we look at it from God's perspective, he's chosen us and worked in us, then what that means is that we then must and thus have turned to God, faith, we've turned to God from idols, that is from everything else that we had ever put our trust in. And now we find ourselves serving The living, not dead, and true, not false, God. All the while, waiting for the return of his son. Okay, all of that should be true of us. We we talked at some length of at least these first two, and and we said they're consistent with the gospel, because you see, before this gospel, gospel means good news. Before it's good news, it's bad news, right? The gospel comes first, to tell us that there is something wrong here, dreadfully wrong, eternally wrong, sinfully wrong, wickedly wrong with us. That we've turned from God as human beings. He created us in his image. We've turned from that. We see it in the Garden of Eden, just like Adam and Eve, and, and their corruption, their sin impacting us, following us. Uh, being true of us as well. They wanted to put themselves in the place of God. We want to put ourselves in the place of God. That's idolatry, putting anything else in the place of God. And so uh, when the word of God comes to us in this power by the spirit, it has its full effect. What we find in us, what they found in them, what we find in us is that we turn. We say, all right, that's all wrong. Following after All that I thought was really life. All that I thought would really satisfy. All that I arranged my life around. That was all wrong. That was idolatry. That was putting someone else in the place of God. Someone else to tell me who I am. Someone else to lead me in my life. To command me to tell me what life is and how it ought to be lived. As someone else in whom I should find my real joy. I had all of these things, these idols over here, the idols of my heart. And, and what is true then for one upon whom the word of God has come in power and had its effect is that it causes me then to turn from all of that, that's all wrong, to God in faith. And that faith is in Jesus, of course, because we come to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, you see. He's the one who reconciles us to God. Because what was wrong with us, our waywardness, our sin, really, our rebellion against God, Jesus came as as our representative. He came to live the life that we should have lived. So he's obeyed every place where we've sinned. And he took the penalty for our sin upon himself. It's just the gospel. You should know this. You should be tracking. If you're a Christian, you'd be going, yes, 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 yes. Your heart should be going, right? This is true. Don't miss the part. That's really important, you see. Never get used to this. 
Ever get comfortable with this? In the sense that it's just ho-hum. It isn't ho-hum at all. Right? It's our very life. And so, so he, he took the penalty for our sin and died so that we would be forgiven. God could be just, punish sin, and also the justifier declare righteous those who have faith in Jesus because our sins are really, are really dealt with. So we, we turn from all that's false, right? All that will not give life. We finally get it and understand that. And we turn to God in faith in Jesus because he is the giver, the sustainer of life, real life. So, so that's just true of us. It has to be true of us. We have to, to turn from to, it's called repentance, really, and faith. And then that's consistent with serving the true and living God. That is no longer serving that which is dead, that which is false. And the way that we serve that which is dead and false is we actually thought they were real and true. And we believed their promises. We believed that our accumulation could make us secure. We believed that our wealth could keep make us happy. We believed that our, our jobs could define us. We believed in all these idols, you see, that we had placed out there to define and direct us and to make us happy and all that. And, and so we served them. We arranged our lives around all of those ideas, all of those idols, if you will. And now we're turning from all of that to God, which means we'll believe his promises. And we'll arrange our lives around him. And we'll follow after him. And so we turn from idols to God so that we can serve, believe, trust, follow after the living and true God. Right. But here's this as well. And now we find ourselves as those who wait for the return of our Lord Jesus. What does that mean? What does it mean that we wait for him? Notice how Paul puts it, this verses 9 and 10. He says, how you turn, from, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us. From the wrath to come, we're those who wait. What does that, what does that really mean to wait? It seems different from serving. Serving seems so active. Waiting seems so passive. But what does it really mean? What really is this waiting? Well, biblically speaking, when, when the Bible uses the word waited, it's more than just putting in time. There's no thumb twiddling. When waiting is used in the Bible, there isn't any sort of staring out the window for waiting. It means a longing for. We wait because there's a longing for. There's a desire for. This waiting is really an expression of our hope. And hope really is faith Can we put it this way? Faith on tiptoes. (laughs) Hope is is kind of, we believe it, and now we're looking for it, you see, to come this ultimate deliverance. That's our hope. hope. Hope means we're looking for something good to come. We don't have it quite yet. We don't have it in all of its fullness. We don't have it really all of it yet, but we're waiting for good to come. You, You see, when we speak of hope, we, we don't 
think of something bad to come. We hope for that which is good. Uh, For instance, every day in the summer, I hope the Royals win. Now, I expect them to lose. (laughs) But I don't hope that they do, right? Uh, I hope the Yankees lose. But I expect them to win. But we hope for that, which is good. When you apply for a job, you might not expect to get it, but you hope you do, you see. And, and, and the more certain our hope is, uh, the, the more we anticipate its actual fulfillment, its actual coming, you see. And, and, and that's it. There's a certain hope that Christ will return. And that is what that is, that is, that is the, the meaning, if you will, of our waiting. See, the people of God is always, have always been a waiting people. They've always been a hopeful people. All the way back to the Garden of Eden. See, in the very Garden of Eden, the first promise came that, that the one will come from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. That was the promise to Adam and Eve. And, and so from that moment... We became a hopeful people. Evil had entered the race. Death had entered the race. Misery had entered the earth. And so everything was topsy-turvy. But a promise came that a day will come when one will come from the seed of the woman and deal with this. And deal with this evil one and deal with evil. And from that moment on, we became the people of God. Those who believed in him, those who trusted became a people who would be expectant, who would wait, who would have this hope. Promise comes to Abraham. That one from your family will bless all the nations, all the families of the earth. An expectant, a hopeful people. Moses speaks of another prophet who is to come. Moses says, another prophet like me that is a prophet who brings the word of God, who delivers his people from bondage. Just like I've done, another prophet is to come. We become a hopeful people. Moses was great, but, but there's a greater Moses, a greater one, a greater Messiah, a greater deliverer, a greater Savior who is who is to come. Uh, David was, was, uh, caused us to be a hopeful people because the promise came to him that there would be one who would sit on his throne forever and rule the, the, the people of God in, in, in justice and in righteousness and in grace and mercy and all of that would be the perfect ruler. And so to hope for, for this one to deal with evil, this hope for one who would come and bless all the families of the earth, this one who would come and sit on this throne and this one who would be this great deliverer isaiah the prophet speaks of him as well and he says a day will come when one will come and he will be our our mighty god everlasting father prince of peace he will be the wonderful counselor on his shoulders all rule will sit the government will be upon his shoulders and he will rule with righteousness and justice from one day all the way throughout all eternity Uh, that really is and and so the people of god hoped waited for this very one to come. The prophet Jeremiah spoke of him as well. He said, a new covenant is coming. Not the old one that you all break all the time, but a new one is coming. And in this new one, you you need to to, to realize in this this new one, I'm going to take my law and I'm going to write it upon your minds. I'm going to put it in your hearts. I'm going to change the very inclination of your hearts by this. You will be a transformed people. The law won't be outside, 
But inside, you will be my people. I will be your God. You will know me. Your sins will be forgiven. The prophet Ezekiel says, yes, in this new covenant that was to come for them, is to come this new covenant that I'll take out your heart of stone and I'll put in a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and I will enable you to walk in my statutes. The prophet Joel says that a day is coming when God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh and all people will know him and speak of him and prophesy of him and speak the truth of God. He says, that's to come. And and the people of God would wait and wait and wait for that. And there was a day then in the temple when a man named Simeon who had been waiting all his life and a woman named Anna who had been waiting all her life looking, anticipating, longing, desiring for this one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, this one who would bless all the nations of the world, this one who would deliver his people, this one who would sit on the throne and rule and reign, this one upon whom the government would be upon his shoulders, this mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, wonderful Counselor, this very one who would usher in the new covenant so that the law of God would be written on the minds and hearts of people, this very one who would enable everyone who were the people of God to know God, to have sins forgiven, to, to be, to belong to God, this very one who would come and take out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh, whose spirit would live within so that we could walk in that, that very one who, who would cause his spirit to be poured out upon all flesh so that people of God could speak the truth of God. Anna, Simeon, they waited their whole lives in anticipation. You get the sense That as they were in the temple, that every time a new baby was brought in for circumcision, every time a new baby was brought in, that they would look over and go, hmm, everyone. On a day came when that one came. And they remarked, oh, the consolation of Israel. Everything that we've been looking for is now here. Now you see, because of, of, of the way the Old Testament was written and just the, the best that anybody could do in, in, in reading it and understanding it, all of that, there was a sense that once this Messiah came, that would be it. That sin would be dealt with completely and eradicated from the face of the earth. But, 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 we realize that there are two advents. There are two coming. And now that we know that we read back through the Old Testament scriptures, we go, oh, I see it. Oh, yes, I, I see it. But it becomes very clear as, as Jesus comes. He, he lays it out for them clearly. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back. Oh. He, he tells parables about, about the talents, you remember, about the master giving talents and then leaving and then coming back. The angels spoke of it on the ascension day when Jesus ascended into heaven. This Jesus, whom you see taken up right now, is going to return to you in the same way that he's, that he's left, you see, in the clouds. I had a good friend in Denver who would come into my office when I was pastoring there for a short while. And he, he would say to me, on a clear day with not a cloud in the sky, it's a bad day. And I'd say, why is that? He said, because Jesus is going to come back in the clouds. <laughs> Not a cloud in the sky. The only guy I knew in Colorado that wanted clouds. But we see this anticipation, this hope, you see, this longing for Jesus, you see, to return. The apostles spoke of it. The apostle John 
saw it in the Revelation. In fact, the last prayer in the scripture is, Come, Lord Jesus. We're waiting for it. The people of God. Why? Before I went to seminary, which was a while ago, I made a list of questions that I wanted to have the answers. I was a bit older when I went to seminary. I was 31, so I'd lived a bit. I'd, I'd walked with the Lord for a time as an adult and all of that, and so and read some and prepared to go and so forth and so on. So, so I, I went maybe a little more prepared than I would have gone if I would have been uh, 22 or 23. But, but there I was, and so I made this list of things that I wanted answers to when I went to seminary. It wasn't as long a list as it should have been. And I didn't have all the right questions. But, but one of the questions was, God, what's for now? And what's for after the return of Christ? In other words, what can I expect now in life? And, and what is really not going to come until Jesus returns? I, I want to know that. The reason I want to know that is because I don't like to be disappointed so I could set all my expectations and life would go exactly the way I wanted it to. And so I didn't quite get all the answer to that question. Still struggle with it. But, but, but in regards to sin, this is what we know about now and later. In regard to our sin, when Christ came in his first advent, he came to deal with the penalty of sin and its ultimate power in the lives of God's people. That is, he dealt with the penalty so that we could be forgiven our sins, and he dealt with the, po- the power of sin, its enslaving power, so that we could turn away from sin's grip and believe. So the Bible says when it says that the sin is no longer dominion over us. We're no longer utterly enslaved to it. But something that hasn't yet happened in regard to sin is that it's still present in us and on the earth. And so there's this struggle still, though I'm forgiven my sins as a believer, and though its power has been broken so that I can believe And so that I can seek God and by the help of his spirit obey, still there's this struggle in my own life with it. So so the admonition in this life, we're called to put to death sin, right? We're, We're called to take off the old and put on the new. We're called to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God that is by faith. You know, if you don't know that struggle, (laughs) you're dead and in heaven already. So if you're sitting there breathing, you know that struggle. But, But what is to come is a day will come on the earth, what the Bible calls the new earth. A day will come on the new earth where sin will not be present. Boggles the imagination. 
So now we know it's penalty, sins, penalty has been dealt with. Its ultimate power has been broken in the lives of believers. But a day will come when it will no longer be present. That's the day for which we long. That's the day for which we wait. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews in chapter 9. Verse 28. Verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, he's dealt with sin in the sense that he's dealt with its power and its ultimate penalty. And now he has people who are waiting for him. We're waiting for him. And, and, and the people, who the Christians who have died and are in glory are waiting as well. It's not all done yet for them either. Read Revelation, you can see what life is like <laughs> in glory. But, 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 but so they're waiting as well for this final consummation of the kingdom. When he comes in his first kingdom, his first coming, we can say his kingdom was inaugurated. It was installed. It began. But when he comes in his second coming, it'll be consummated. It'll be brought to completion. We'll see its, its fullness. Sin will be eradicated from the face of the new earth. Everything then will reflect him. And we long for that day. You see, we long for that day, not just because this day, because of sin, is so wearisome. It is wearisome. And we long for that day in part because of the, the weariness of the world in which we live, the anxiety, the insecurity. We know about it emotionally. We know about it psychologically. We know about it physically as we see illness and aging before our eyes. We know all those difficulties. We see it socially, relationally, as individually people war against each other, as nation by nation wars against each other. We see the injustice. We see the poverty. We see all of that, and that, that wearies us. You see, that's, that's the misery caused by the presence of sin. And we want to get out of that misery. There's no, no question about that. But so do unbelievers. They would like to see that misery gone too. If you ask unbelievers, gave them a multiple choice test on what you would make a list on what you would like to see gone, they would list some of the very things we would list, like poverty and injustice and sadness and aging and illness and all those things. Everybody wants to see those things, those things gone. So it is not just for that that we're waiting and longing. What we're waiting and longing for is for Jesus to be glorified. That's really what we're longing for. We want Jesus to be seen by everyone from all time for who he really is. And we want everything to reflect him. Now when he's seen and everything reflects him, then all the misery will be gone for those in him. Because there is no real misery in him. See, this thing that we long for is not pie in the sky. It's not just sort of something out there. It's really true. 
What John saw was this, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. There will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed, have passed away. That's what it will be. You see, that's, we long for that. But that only comes, you see, when Jesus is glorified. When every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he really is the Lord. We wait, you see, for that. And we wait with a certain hope. We are 100% certain. If we were athletes, we'd be 110% certain, right? We don't take math. But, but, but we're 100% completely certain in this return of Jesus and all the good that will come. We wait for it. We long for it. We anticipate it's coming. And we're certain because as, as, as Paul lays it out here for us, we're waiting for the very Son of God from heaven. That is from the very place of God, from the very rule and reign of the place of God. We're expecting this one who is his son. He's come once. He's, he's dealt with sin. And we know that he's dealt with sin because we're waiting for this son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. He couldn't be in heaven unless he ascended. He couldn't have ascended unless he was raised from the dead because he was killed. But because he was killed and raised, we know that he's dealt with sin. Because he dealt with it and he was raised, meaning he dealt with our sin, not his own. Thus, once he paid, he was free to go. And so we wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's it, isn't it? Being delivered from the wrath to come. It isn't that we're delivered just from disappointment. It isn't that we're delivered from disease. It isn't that we're delivered from illness. It isn't that we're delivered from hurtful and difficult relationships. It isn't that we're delivered just from grief. It isn't that we're delivered from our personalities. It isn't that we're delivered from from our body type. It isn't that we're delivered by, by, by all of these things that we would like gone from our life or changed from our life. It isn't that we're delivered from that. It's that we're delivered from the wrath of God. Now, sometimes people think that when we talk about the wrath of God, we're speaking of something that's unbecoming of God, the anger or, 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 or that kind of thing. That that's not, not, should not be true of God. 
because we think of wrath and we apply it to our, ourselves and to human beings and, and we realize that when, often when we're wrathful, we're out of control or we're seeing red, as you might say, or there's just some anger deep within us that's, that, that we express inappropriate or, or it isn't correct to be angry at what we're angry at. We're just, we're just hurt, we're just mad. But, but that isn't the wrath of God at all. The wrath of God is his reasonable, measured, Controlled, appropriate, just, justified response to evil. It tells us that he is morally perfect. That he is the judge as he must be. And he must deal with this evil. And it isn't just uh, uh, an objective thing with him. It's real. And his wrath expresses the reasonable, controlled, measured, righteous, just, justified response to wickedness, to evil, to sin. J.I. Packer, in a book you should read called Knowing God, puts it like this. He says, thus... God's love, as the Bible views it, never leads him to foolish, impulsive, immoral actions in the way that its human counterpart too often leads us. And in the same way, God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble, which so often characterizes human anger. It is instead a right and necessary action to objective moral evil, God is only anger, angry where anger is called for. Even among humans, there's such a thing as righteous indignation, though it is perhaps rarely found in us. But all God's indignation is righteous. Would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in this world be morally perfect? Surely not. But it's precisely this adverse reaction to evil which is a necessary part of moral perfection that the Bible has in view when it speaks of the wrath of God. And you say, I'm not that bad. And I say, compared to what? Compared to me, you're not that bad. In fact, compared to me, you might be great. But that isn't the comparison. The comparison is to what is morally true. The comparison is the very heart of God that he expresses to us in his law. And he says, this is, this is what it means to really live. You must love God and you must love one another. And you say, I haven't been that bad. And again, who have you offended? I've used this illustration before, but it helps me. If I made a painting, you might say, I didn't know you paint. I don't. Actually, I do, but I paint one color at a time on a drywall canvas. <laughs> Various rooms in my house. So yeah, that's about it. Uh, but, but let's say I made a painting. You know, I, took out, I made a painting. You go, since you don't paint, I bet it's not that good. Uh, you're tracking. 
So I made a painting. Let's say you spilled ink on it. And let's say you did it on purpose. What would be the penalty for your crime? Some people may applaud you. It would be that bad of a painting. That may have fit it, but, 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 but what if it were a Rembrandt or a Da Vinci or a fill-in-your-favorite painter and it was desecrated on purpose? What would be the penalty for the crime? There would be a huge difference between spoiling one of mine and spoiling one of theirs. This is God we're talking about. A small smidge, as we might think of it. Smudge on God. It's huge. Thus is wrath against evil, which is our rebellion against him, is huge. Jesus described it with the term Gehenna which we translate as hell. Now Jesus spoke of this Gehenna, which was a, a burning place, a place to burn trash, really, and refuge outside the city of Jerusalem. But, but this Gehenna, this place of burning, he spoke to it as a place where the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. Again, Packer's commentary. He says, in describing God's wrath, Jesus uses his solemn imagery, Gehenna, hell, in Mark 9, 47, and 10 other gospel texts, which is the valley outside of Jerusalem where rubbish is burned, the worm that doesn't die, an image, it seems, for the endless disillusion of personality by a condemning conscience, fire for the agonizing awareness of God's displeasure, outer darkness for knowing of the loss, not merely of God, but of all good and everything that made life seem worth living, gnashing of teeth for the self-condemnation and self-loathing. You see, we're waiting for judgment to come. We're hoping. How could that be? Only if we're confident that Jesus delivers us from that judgment. Jesus delivers us from that wrath. This has come. That's the gospel, people. That, that's it, you see. We wait because we know that when he comes for his people, it's to save us, not to inflict upon us the wrath of God. And we know that because we know that he's already taken it. That's what the Bible talks about in atoning sacrifices. It's in the image of, 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 of God's people from the very beginning with Moses when, when the animal was, the lamb was sacrificed on Passover. This instead of you, the, the, the various feasts of sacrifices, the day of atonement when the goats were, were sacrificed. This instead of you, this unblemished animal, this animal that has no reason to be put to death at all this one in your place so jesus shows up he's the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world he's the one who doesn't deserve to die he's the one upon whom the sins of sinners is put so that atonement is made the big word you know what it is propitiation 
means that the wrath of God in the sacrifice of Jesus, in the death of Jesus, has been exhausted, has been satisfied. The image is a cup of wine that staggers. The image is that this cup has been drunk completely dry so that there's no wrath of God left so that when Jesus comes back, this one for whom we're waiting, he'll eradicate sin from the presence of our lives, from the presence of the earth, and all will reflect him. Thus, all will be well. So what do we do while we wait? (laughs) We long for him to come. We desire for him to come. We anticipate his coming. And we do that in such a way that we arrange ourselves around all that we long for. That is the very presence of Jesus, the very image of God reflected in all things. And so you see, we get busy and, and about that. I was saying the other night, we, we, please forgive this one, uh, we, we, we wait for the return of Jesus as an outfitter awaits for the ball to come. He doesn't twiddle his thumbs. He doesn't whistle in the night. He arranges himself so that he's right there at the right time to catch the ball. His whole life becomes consumed about that which is to come. And and that's his hope, that it's going to come down. I'm going to catch it. Uh, We wait like a farmer waits. The way that James puts it is like this in James in chapter 5. In verse 7. He writes, be patient, therefore, that is, wait until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and latter rains. Farmers wait, but I've never met an inactive farmer. For a farmer to wait means that he is arranging his whole life around the hope that there will be a harvest. And so he does everything consistent with the harvest that is to come. The way James puts it, he says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That is, cause your hearts to be deep in this truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The way John puts it is like this. First John, I read this this morning already. Chapter 2, verse 28. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, that when he comes, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And here's what it means to wait. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, if your heart's desire is to see everything reflect the image of God. 
Get after it now. Live this out now. Confess, repent, hear the word, believe, serve. Again, this illustration I used a decade or so ago helps me. Let's say you're a 10-year-old boy and you're living in Lawrence, Kansas, and you're asleep one night, and an angel appears to you. And the angel says to you, you're going to be the best three-point shooter in the history of Kansas basketball. And you go, but I'm 10. I can't get there till I'm 18. And the angel says, wait. What would you do? Well, it depends on your heart. If you don't like basketball, you may not do anything. But if you're like most 10-year-old boys growing up in Lawrence, Kansas... Waiting means that even though it's two in the morning and your parents might kill you, you slide out of bed, you lace up your sneakers or whatever they're called now, and you get down to the driveway and you turn on the spotlight and you start shooting. Why? Because you have hope. And every time you miss a shot, you go, that's all right. I got the promise. I know that a day will come. I'm going to be the best three-point shooter the University of Kansas has ever seen. That's your hope, and that drives you. And every time you make a shot, you go, see, it's true. And that's the way we're to live, you see. We've been told that a day will come when Jesus will return, and he will eradicate sin from the presence of our lives, from the presence of the earth. We're to long for that day, and we do. So what are we to do now? We're to wait. What does that mean? It means we're to lace up our sneakers. It means we're to serve the living and true God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me, pray for us, that we would have this hope, and this hope would, as the prophet Isaiah says, give us strength, that we would mount up on wings like eagles. We would run and we would never know weariness. We would walk but not faint because we would be steadfast in faith because we know with certainty who it is, who is to come and the salvation that he brings. And so, Father, I pray that we would be such awaiting people People who have turned, people who serve, people who wait, and thus obey. Father, be with us. May we bring you glory. So, Father, we do pray for those who are suffering deeply on this day, be be it emotionally, be it physically, relationally, psychologically, spiritually suffering, grief, pain, certainty, difficulties. And so we pray that you would enable them to know the truth of Jesus coming, to have hope in him, to be able to wait, that is to persevere in the midst of the difficulty, to persevere in faith, persevere in obedience, persevere in love, persevere without complaining. Be with us all. 
in that regard, I pray. May we be a people who wait in such a way that our, our, our hope would echo forth from this place and other people would hear it and know it. And they would ask us of this hope that is within us that we may tell them of Jesus, we give you thanks, God, for our VBS this week, and we're grateful for all that transpired in the midst of us. In the midst of that, we pray that the truth of the gospel be so now ingrained in the minds and the hearts of children that the new covenant would have come in such a way that all of this gospel had been written on their minds, put in their hearts, changed the very inclinations of their lives, that they may live in such a way uh, that people would see the great hope that they have. Father, we're grateful for the group from Romania and the work that they did there while there, the time that they have in their homecoming. We're grateful. We do pray that you would heal those who have brought home a bit of a bug with them and keep others from getting. We pray for Maddie, Father, that you would be with her as she stays there and heals from her appendectomy and that you would be with her and uh, with Jason as he returns with her this week. Father, we're grateful that we can trust you. No matter what happens in our lives, we know who you are. Thus, we live with great hope. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.